You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Welcome. Welcome, Redemption Calgary North. I had to practice that a few times to make sure I didn't mess that up. <laughs> like Adam said, I'm Kyle. Uh, I, am, I am nothing more than a lay person up at uh, Redemption Olds, um, and I'm, I'm excited to be here. If any of you guys don't have a Bible in front of you, now is the perfect time to put up your hands, and we'll get the Word of God in front of you, and I'll sure be happy to bring one for you. If you need a Bible, take it, take it home with you. Um, like I said, it's an honor to be here today worshiping the Lord our God with all of you. This occasion is, is extremely sentimental to me uh, because it's in this building and collectively in this body that uh, my wife and I came to uh, a, a true understanding of our, our depravity, uh, how, how good God is, uh, how amazing Jesus is, and just that absolute separation that as we become less, he becomes more. Uh, so I'm very happy to be here today. Um, it's also a, a pleasure of mine to be up at Pastor Peacock's uh, pulpit. And I'm very thankful that he's given me this opportunity to come before you guys and, and share with you uh, the Word of God that, that God has walked me through uh, in the Holy Scriptures as we look through a passage here in Ecclesiastes. So it was about one year ago that I, I took on this journey in Ecclesiastes again. Uh, with a group of men from Redemption Olds. We were asked to preach through the entire book, and we were very intimidated about it at the beginning. Um, but as we got to dig into Ecclesiastes more, we just see that there is some brilliant uh, wisdom within that, that book. And we were under Pastor Peacock Pryor, who was preaching through it. So this church has heard Ecclesiastes before. It might not be anything new, or it might be something new to some of you here, which is awesome. So the passage in the book of Ecclesiastes, at the end of chapter 2 is what we're going to be covering, and we're going to get into chapter 3. Our text today will be Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. Uh, this is an incredible turning point in the book where Kohelet moves from a very pessimistic tone to a humble and reverent tone that launches the entire book out of its neg negative trajectory and into a traje trajectory that rightfully places it in the category of wisdom literature, um, as it is named with its partners, uh, the Book of Job and the Book of Proverbs. Those are also books that are listed as wisdom literature. So turn with me quickly. We're going to look at the end of chapter 2, starting at verse 18. And we're going to take a look at this transition that he goes through as we set the context for today's sermon. <clears throat> so starting at 18 through to the end of 2. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity." There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind." So take note of how dark and downcast the preacher is in verses 18 through 23. 
And then take note at the frustration of his as he rattles off this refrain that we see in verse 24, this refrain that echoes through the book over and over again. It actually echoes through about five times, like the hymn or like the chorus to a hymn. He keeps going back to this. Take a look as he attributes everything to the sovereign work of the mighty God at the end of verse 24. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. So now this, this isn't yet reverence. This is utter frustration from the author in his lack of control in his own life and how he cannot do anything to change it. This is a moment of clarity um, from, from all of chapter 1 to the end of 2 as Kohelet is at the end of his rope in, in a state uh, of mental and, and utter despair. Now, it, it is my understanding that, that you all are coming out of a very heavy chapter in Genesis 19 as you're traveling through Genesis. Uh, we just, you guys just witness a wrath of the Almighty God. And I am... I'm never short of amazed at God's divine timing in allowing me this opportunity to come here and, and preach about his, his sovereign providence over our lives and his divine grace and his redemption in his people. Um, I'm excited about it. So before we dig into the text, though, there, there's a few things I want to cover you, give you guys a little bit of context again. Um, so again, have a Bible out in front of you. It's important that you are holding me accountable to what's in God's Word, and it, it's important that you guys are searching the Scriptures with me. Second thing, you may have already caught uh, that I use Kohelet. Uh, I used it twice already a little bit ago, and you might be asking, Who, who's this Kohelet? What is this? Uh, like, I thought Solomon was the author of Ecclesiastes. Well, you're going to hear me use the term Kohelet a few more times throughout here today, and essentially it means preacher. You see that in verse 1, that it's the preacher. And its definition essentially is someone who gathers an assembly with the purpose to to teach. This is Kohelet, that's a name given to him. Um, There is some fun debate about the authorship of this book, but it is widely accepted that that King Solomon is the author. Um, But again, I'm not here to talk about that right now, but if you want to talk about that, come say hi to me afterwards and and we can chat about that that conundrum. Thirdly, I want you to understand a very important term in this book, which is pronounced Havel. Uh, It's written Habel, H-E-B-E-L. This is the Hebrew word that's translated in the ESV as vanity. So when you hear the title Ecclesiastes, I'm going to guess that two things come to mind. You probably think, oh man, this book's full of deep depression. I don't, I don't want much to do with it. I'm just going to read through it real fast. The second thing that you might be thinking, as it rings to your head, you hear the title Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I'm sure everybody has heard that. They probably memorize that for whatever reason. It has a certain ring to it. What this word actually means, vanity, is it means a smoke or vapor. Uh, it is a breath. So wintertime, don't want to think about it too much, it's the middle of summer. When you breathe, you see your breath. Have you ever tried to grasp that breath? Have you ever tried to catch smoke? It's impossible, it doesn't happen. This is what the preacher is talking about, vanity here, Havel. You cannot grasp it. Life is Havel. Life is vanity. You cannot take control of it. You cannot grasp it. And this is his, his frustration that he wrestles with. It's, it's out of his control. Thank you for sticking with me through that intro. Now that we've set uh, some, some limits for us today, let's get into the text proper. So Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. We are going to read this portion today, and it is a portion of uh, biblical poetry. It's actually one of the most used portions of Scripture in the secular world today, believe it or not. This portion is, uh, funny enough, the exact lyrics of a a song called Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds. Some of you guys might recognize that. Listen to the song. It's amazing. It's the exact lyrics they took out and 
they're probably not paying copyrights to God either for it. <laughs> but like most scripture, when you take something out of context, its meaning is grossly misunderstood. And the most important context of the poem actually comes directly after it as Kohelet challenges his audience to consider life in its entirety and to consider God's sovereign providence. Then the preacher, Kohelet, continues to unpack this grand question of life's meaning and how our satisfaction, our meaning, and our enjoyment are only found when we're rooted in a relationship with God. So if you haven't already, open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. It's right after Proverbs. Um, I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 10. We're going to stop there. We're going to tackle this in in small portions so we can keep the Scripture at the forefront of our minds. Uh, Let let me pray for us today uh, before we go into the reading. Gracious Father, God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather all in, in one service as a as a body, Father, visit, visit friends we haven't seen, family we haven't seen, and we, we pray for those meeting out at camp, Father, as well, that they would be blessed by digging into your word. Father, would you soften our hearts to, to hear your word today, your message? Would you turn our gaze to you, to your glory, as we, as we set our eyes upon you, who is the, is the sovereign over all things? God, be with us today, and it's in your name we pray, um, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. It's Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So I'm going to break down for us God's divine poetry. Beautiful section of poetry there. And I'm going to start with a couple of definitions that's going to help us throughout our text today. Uh, When we look at the definition of a word, we want to look at its biblical definition and how it's used in the context of the Bible. We don't want the world's definition. We don't want Webster's definition. Um, In the church and in Christian circles, we tend to have uh, unique languages based on Scripture uh, and sayings or words that are common to us and not as common to the secular world tends to be referred to as Christianese. So let's look at two words here that I want to unpack for us, sovereign and providence. The biblical definition of sovereign is, as in the Lord is sovereign, the definition is, while referring to God, it is his absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. The definition of providence literally means foresight or to see ahead to know what's coming ahead, but it's generally used to denote God's preserving and governing of all things. So when we look at the title today that I've crafted for us, God's Sovereign Providence, this title literally means God's absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure to preserve and govern all things. His absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure to preserve and govern all things. That's God's sovereign providence. God is a creator. He is our ruler. He rules the natural world. He rules creation. He rules the affairs of people collectively and individually, including both sin and good actions. 
Now, this doesn't mean that God approves of any sin because he's sovereign in it, but it does mean that he allows it. He is able to rule over it for good. He also can limit it, and he also can restrain it. So let's understand together that God is sovereign over all things. God is the Almighty, and and this fact should cause us to be in reverence of him always. He is the Almighty, sovereign Lord. He is a creator, and we are the created. So let's not get that mixed up. Otherwise, we will end up very frustrated and tired trying to herd the wind and control life just like we see Kohelet doing um, as he tries to wrap his head around all of this. So to bring us back into the text in verse 1, Kohelet points out to us that for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So the word season here marks different events in life that are not subject to chance. As we talk about God's sovereignty and his providence, it's right here in verse 1. Man's wisdom would tell us that these seasons or flows of life, what happened to us throughout life, are all subject to chance. And that life, it just comes and it goes about you. Uh, You take it in stride. Uh, But when we consider God's providence, we see that chance isn't true. These seasons of life don't happen by chance. So let's look a little bit closer at it, and we will see that even Solomon realizes this fact, that God is over all things by the word that he uses. The Hebrew word that he uses here is zaman. That's the word for season, meaning that there's a set time or an appointed time. This is also used in Ezra 10.14, saying, Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times. Also in Nehemiah, it says that he established the work of the priests and the Levites in Jerusalem and that he provided for the wood offering at appointed times. These are specific times. And that's Nehemiah 13.31. So what we see is that that these seasons and these times in our lives, again, are not by chance, but rather they are divinely timed for our good and for his glory. We don't believe in luck, and there is not chance. So let's take a closer look at this poetry, and we'll get a little bit deeper into the, the layout of this. I'll read it one more time for us here. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, A lot of ink has been spilled over this poetry if you go through all the commentaries. And there there are truly a lot of complexities to it. Um, But we're going to boil it down to what's important here. And I want you to get, if you want to get my full take on it, again, feel free to come talk to me afterwards and we can talk about all the the length of complexities on it. Or come up to Olds, come to my church, come to my house, we'll have a barbecue and we can talk about it. It'd be awesome. Let's sum it up for for a little bit. At first glance, one of the most obvious things that we see here is that we have a comparative, or we have two things that are compared in each line. Uh, This actually is a a literary device that's called a merismus. It's not super important that you remember what a merismus is, but if there's any lovers of poetry here or language majors and you want to wow somebody with a little fact, bust that out. Um, what a merismus does is it actually takes two contrasting terms in their full extent, so every end of the spectrum, and it essentially shows that it is all-inclusive. So when Kohelet here talks about a time to be born and a time to die, what he's actually talking about is all of life. 
life in its entirety, from birth to death. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 139.8, he uses this. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. What he's doing is he's declaring that the Lord is everywhere. There's no escaping it. So first we have two pairs of contrasts that are a complete summation of life, birth and death, a, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. Both are very similar. This contrast shows us that there is a complete picture from beginning to end of life, and none of this is subject to chance, if you take notice. It's all subject to sovereign timing. No child ever chooses when they want to be born. Uh, My poor daughter was born on the 27th of December. She had no choice, no say in that matter. Um, No seed gets to choose the day that they are planted. That's up to the farmer to do. Uh, These two starts of life are subject to a creator or an authority. But basically, the first pair is describing the most momentous events in human life, birth and death, and then the next three pairs deal with creative and destructive human activities. Verse 4 then deals with human emotions. So now we have emotions here. First, we see private emotions, to weep and to laugh. And then next, we see public emotions, uh, to mourn and to dance. Those are public events. Verse 5, we have two pairs of contrasts that deal with friendship and enmity, um, or more plainly said, our relationships. Now, there are a lot of different remarks in in different commentaries on verse 5a, to cast away stones and to gather stones. Like, that seems very foreign to us. Like, what's the big deal with picking up a few rocks? Um, but it is, it is most widely accepted in the understanding that to cast away stones actually meant to clear a field. So to clear a field for, uh, for putting in grain, for putting in life essential nutrients, for sustainability, and then to, to gather stones, or to, sorry, to throw stones, is to actually to ruin a field. Uh, back, in, back in Old Testament times, it was to, an act of war to actually take stones and fill someone's field with it. It makes their soil unproductive and it makes them unable to, to gain a living. And then we have a time to embrace and a time to refrain. This is best described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Uh, so if you're taking notes, just jot that one down. You can take a look at it later. That's 1 Corinthians 7, 5. And then in verse 6, we have two pairs of contrasts that deal with our possessions and what to do with them. A time to seek and a time to lose, referring to possessions. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to to tear... Oh, sorry, that's verse 7. There we go. Time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away. So that's our personal possessions. And then in verse 7 and 8, the the contrasts here are dealing with mourning and, and the termination or the end of mourning periods. Verse 7 and 8 reads, A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to show love or a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. The, the, the tearing brings imagery of, of a time of lamenting, uh, and sowing is to repair or to make new, and that can also be referred to in relationships. So let's do a little bit of math. Any mathematicians here? Nobody. Okay. It's, it's, it's elementary level math. Don't worry about it. If you count these, you have 28 life seasons. And each one has a contrasting partner, which makes a pair. So that means that we have 14 contrasts altogether. 14 is a multiple of 7. Now, in... When we look at the Bible and we see anything that is a multiple of seven or we see the number of seven, what it actually means is that it shows something in its perfection or in its completeness. So this is no coincidence that this poem here has been perfectly crafted to show us that in all of life, all of life in its entirety, in its perfection, there is an appointed time for all things and all seasons of life and that the time of these seasons are not by our choosing either. 
Did anyone try to make sense of the contrast as they're laid out? Did you read over it and, and see if there's any sense to it? Or did it just seem like it was a little bit crazy and, and all over the place? Or did you find flow? I don't know. You're not wrong for any of these thoughts. You're not wrong to think that there is no flow to it. I, I, I don't think there is. And if you... Looking through commentaries, I have found the same thing. There is not much rhyme or reason to how this poem is laid out. Kohelet does that. It's God-inspired to show us that there is no perfect recipe to life. Life is unorganized. What we experience is each going to be different in terms of seasons of life. We don't know what's coming for us up ahead we don't know that, but it's God's sovereign providence to know these things. He knows, but we don't know. It is for God to know. It's not for us to know. Life can be unorganized. It can be messy. And there is no rhythm to it. Sometimes we see mourning in our lives before we have an opportunity to gather with one another and rejoice or laugh and love. Some people are born into war-torn countries and they have little opportunity to be freed from that life for many years, if any. Yet they live. And others will be born, they'll laugh, they'll love, they'll be planted somewhere, they'll set down roots, they'll live their whole life there and then they'll die. So each person has different experiences in life. And it's not up to us. We don't wake up and say that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to laugh for four days. I'm going to mourn for two days after that because I'm tired of laughing. It's going to hurt my abs. Um, we, and then for, for a couple of months, I'm just going to have a nice relaxed time. Like, we, we don't do that. That is not how life goes. We don't know what lies ahead of us, and there is real no way to ever know. And in this not knowing, we should actually find comfort, church, because what we need to do is not know, but is to simply live faithfully and trust in the providence of our gracious and loving God. Solomon here is describing that we don't know. We are out of control of it, and he says that by, by grasping, the, trying to grasp the wind. That's what he's showing for the f- first two chapters is that he is out of control of it. He's tried to control his life, and he is realizing at the end of his life with death in his, in his sights, he can't control any of it. So some of you guys here today know my family's story. I am a pretty open book when it comes to, to talking about my life and communicating with church people. So almost three years ago, my wife and I sold our house in Airdrie, and we were attending here, hoping to get onto a piece of land somewhere, uh, sustainability, farming, just, just enjoy uh, what God's created. Three years later, we were still waiting on the Lord for that. It just, it just never came. And, uh, and by his grace, he actually planted us in Olds, which we didn't see coming. We did not think we'd be planted in the town of Olds. Um, but there we are. Still dream about getting on land. Still want to. That's still in my sights. Some days it's frustrating. Some days I just rest in the Lord. Forgive me, Father, for that frustration. But through all of it, through my family's experience, our prayers, my prayers for my family and, and where, where I set my, my children's and my wife's eyes, has been that we would stay faithful to God, that we would trust in his providence for us no matter what happens. And we can't lose sight of our primary purpose as a family, and that is to glorify him above all else and to walk faithfully with him, to walk faithfully with each other, and to teach our kids to love and trust our Lord Jesus with all their hearts, minds, and souls. Church, this is my prayer for us here today, too, that that we fulfill that role uh, no matter what happens in life. We, We cannot miss out on our primary purpose, which is to glorify him above all else. So let's look back here at verse 9 and 10 as we try to gather out some more main points in this. 
What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So what's Kohelet's point here, and why, why did he use all of his poetry? And furthermore, why does Kohelet once again ask a rhetorical question in verse 9? What gain has a worker from his toil? That's a rhetorical question. He actually used this same question uh, twice now in the previous chapters. So he's alluding to this over and over again. He circles back to this question to reinforce a point and to make, make it even clearer, which the answer to it actually comes in the following sentence. He also did this in chapters 1 and 2. If you look back, he asks this question and, and he gives the answer right there. And the point is basic. It's what's been stated in this book throughout the entire first two chapters. Everything we face, everything that we have, and everything that we do is from the hand of God. The language here shows us Solomon's frustration in it. Uh, again, like I've said, he's a man, we know Solomon, he's a man who's gained great wealth. He, he, he provided himself with everything he wanted, yet he was left frustrated. He, he was mad and angry that he couldn't puff himself up over this. He couldn't glorify himself saying that I've done this. He recognizes here that it is from the hand of God. Now contrast this frustrated heart with someone who has given their life over to God and walks faithfully and trusts in him daily. This news that it's all God's and from God should, again, be reassuring to us as believers to know that everything unfolds according to the providence of God. Romans 8.28 tells us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And this also refers back to chapter 2, verse 26, which we read together, about the one who pleases God and the sinner. There's actually a contrast there. We have the one who pleases God and we have the sinner. One receives wisdom and knowledge and joy and the other receives busy, empty, meaningless work, which at the end will leave them unsatisfied and still searching for life's answers. And look at verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Don't be fooled, church, that this business here is, is, an, is an exciting work. This is, this is not pleasing work that's been given to them. This whole sentence following the rhetorical question has a very negative and depressing tone to it. Solomon has witnessed back-breaking labor that has been given to people under the sun. He himself surely has delivered work to slaves and to laborers for years as he's ordered the building of his own palace He's ordered the building of the walls around the palace. He's ordered the building of, of gardens that were magnificent. And he's ordered the, the labor, the busy work of building the temple of God. So this wasn't personally him experiencing or doing this labor. He was delivering it. He was ordering it. So Solomon knew all about giving out busy work. And as I was wrestling through it, and it might sound familiar to you guys too, you're going through Genesis. Uh, this whole sentence runs very familiar in my mind because it should. So look back with me at Genesis 3 for, for just a moment here. Let's read through that together. Genesis 3, we'll go 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
This is the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He has given us all of life outside of Eden and under the sun. This is, this is a life apart from God. So look further with me into verses 11 and 13. And here we will see a little bit about how God has created us and what he has put into us. And I've called this God's divine creation. That, that is us, church. God's divine creation. Go back to Ecclesiastes 11 through 13. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. When I was looking through all the poetry and wrestling through, through all these seasons and events of life, I also couldn't help notice that some of this list can be both positive and negative. I don't know if you guys picked up on that. And this is what, this is what the author actually means when he says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, sometimes it is hard for us to realize how something like, like killing or war or being uprooted from where you are um, can be positive. But when we remember that everything is ordained by God himself, we see that it's truly being done under his providence and by his divine sovereignty. So think just momentarily about our Lord, our Lord Jesus. Like death, murder, those are not good things, right? Yet they were good for us. So this is how Kohelet deals with his frustrated heart as he looks at the world and its events, and, and surely he, he's, he's not making sense of it all. And if Solomon can't make sense of it all, the wisest man besides Jesus to have ever walked the earth, like how are we supposed to make sense of it? Now, by the Lord's grace, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have this book in its entirety, and he, he will reveal to us as he chooses. But look here again at the second half of verse 11. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we have been given by God an eternal view in our hearts. What this means is that we desire to make sense of the world. It makes sense to understand all of it. We want to see justice prevail. We want to see the wicked receive what they're due. We want life to make sense. We want to know the plans that God has. So read through the Psalms and read through the Proverbs and read through the book of Job and keep this thought in mind, this, this theme of justice and righteousness the way that we see it everywhere, the way we want it to unfold. Think about that. But it can also be confusing because it doesn't turn out the way that we expect it to. It's not going to turn out according to our justice. It's not going to turn out according to our expectations. And this is where the confusion comes in. What, what do we do with that? What do we do when life gets confusing, when things aren't what they seem? I'm sorry, but we're, we're not going to be able to make sense of it all. <laughs> because we're not perfect. We are not privy to knowing all of it. Why? Because we are not God. We are not the creator. We are the created we do not know what God knows. We do not do what he does. We, we simply would not be able to handle it in our mortal bodies. We are not God. We are not the creator. We are not going to know everything. Um, an example of this uh, would be, uh, take for instance a mechanic, someone, someone who's a professional mechanic. 
they are a Ford technician and they know, they know everything about Fords. They're, they're working really hard to know all about Fords, but there's always new models coming out, so they always got to keep up on it. The reality is that mechanic will never know everything there is to know about Fords. And better yet, if he's a Ford mechanic, he's not going to know Dodges as well as a Dodge mechanic does. The reality is, is they're, they're never going to know everything. Um, God knows everything. He knows everything intimately. He, he has created it. He knows all things. He knows how it works. That is not us. We could spend our lifetime learning everything there is to know about a single subject, but we will never truly know everything about it. And God has designed it to be that way, and it is okay. He knows everything about it, and he is the best at it. Praise God that it's in his hands. So church, you guys are allowed to speak up here. What do we call the character trait of God that means that he knows everything? Omniscience, that's right. God is omniscient. Are we? No. <laughs> no, we are not. God is omniscient. People are not omniscient. He is and we are not. God is a creator and we are the created. So as Kohelet understands this and as, as, it's, as it's shaping his mind and, and moving him from frustration to, to positivity, let's look at Kohelet's response here in verses 12 and 13. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So the same conclusion was made back in verse, or chapter 2, verses 24, uh, when I pointed out this is a great refrain that rings through the book over and over again, like the chorus to a hymn. This is the second time that we see this refrain. It says... Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That refrain happens over and over and over and over again in this book. And when we carry on through this book, you actually see it three more times. It's five times throughout the book. Believers, life is vanity if we live apart from our Creator. Life is Havel. Life, life is meaningless. Life is, is vapor smoker in a life lived apart from our, our holy and sovereign creator. There is nothing for us when we live outside of a relationship with God. But when we attribute everything to him and praise him for his wonderful and perfect kind gifts, we are able to make sense of life just a little bit more. So my kids, a few semesters ago, have been working to commit John 15, verses 1 through 11, uh, to, to memory. Bless their souls, they finished it, and I bet you if I asked them today, they could, they could probably rattle it off. Um, but their, their poor old father doesn't quite remember it. So turn with me to John 15, and we are going to take a look. John 15, we're going to go verses 5 through 11. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 15, 5 through 11. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full." Did you hear that? There is no way that our joy can be full outside of a relationship with God. 
We can have joy. We can have some satisfaction. But all of that is fleeting. All of that is going to disappear at some point. Like, like your breath in the winter air, it's here for a moment and then it's gone. But when our joy and our satisfaction is founded in our Creator, our joy is full and everlasting. The ability to live Him, li- sorry, the ability to live in Him and to work under His sovereignty. This truly is a blessed gift from God. As it says in the text in Ecclesiastes, this is God's gift to man. So do you want to hear the key to life, a key to life that's unpacked in this book? Fear God and obey His commandments. Live a life according to Him and praise Him for His constant goodness over your life. Because like it says in John 15, as we just read, apart from him, you can do nothing. You do absolutely nothing. Nothing of good. So trust in him. Submit to God and love him because he is just. He is faithful to love you and he will constantly care for you. He is so good. I'm going to throw a little, little side note in here. It, this book is so neat. If I told you this at the beginning, you might have just tuned out. <laughs> this book is, is, is written as a frame narrative. What that means is you can actually take chapter 1, the way, it's, this, the way it's intended to be understood, take chapter 1, verses, read verses 1 through 3, and then do what your mom always told you not to do. Skip all the way to the end of the book, Read chapter 12, verses 13 through 14. That's called, a, it's a frame narrative. It's essentially how you, well, you frame out a house, you build the walls, and then you build the roof, fill it with everything. The beginning and the end, you have a dilemma at the beginning and the antidote that's right there. And it says at the end of the book in, in verses, verses 13 and 14, um, it's to fear God, to obey his commandments. Like, that, that is the, the key to life here that he is unpacking for us. Life is vanity. Life is fleeting. We can't control it. What, what do we do with it? We fear God. We obey his commandments, and, and life, life will be full of joy. So let's carry on to verses 14 and 15 as we wrap up today. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So here at the end of the book we have, or sorry, at the end of, end of this portion here, we have God's divine redemption. Kohelet, uh, the preacher here, he starts off another statement with the words, I perceived. And, and this, this perks my interest. What did he see? What does he know? Um, we've seen this twice now. You use the word perceived. It's more than just knowing something. It's more than just seeing something. It is, it is a fact. He has perceived this. What we're about to hear from Kohelet, or what we just read, is something that he knows And here's what he knows to be true, that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. It reminds me of the end of Revelation. Nothing can be added to this. Nothing can be taken from it. This is is our authority. Whatever God does, it endures forever. You can't erase what God has done. He's showing here a complete acceptance and submission and understanding that, that we Humans are the created. We cannot change what God has purposed. We cannot herd the wind, and we cannot add a single day to our lives by worrying about anything. What God does stands forever, and he does everything in his sovereign providence. It's for his 
glory. He is in total and complete control. An author of a commentary, John Curid, I uh, wrote the commentary, Ecclesiastes, A Quest for Meaning. Uh, he explained this verse so well that, that I felt like I needed to uh, directly quote it. So I'm going to read this out for us regarding these verses. This verse tells us three things about God's sovereignty. First, his sovereignty is perpetual. That is, it is eternal. As the prophet Isaiah declares, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's from Isaiah 40, verse 8. Second, his work is perfect. So his work is perpetual. His work is perfect. Nothing can be or needs to be added to it or taken from it. Finally, his work is purposeful. The truth of the sovereignty of God drives people to their knees in awe and wonder, and this leads to their obedience. In verse 15, Solomon affirms the truth of the sovereignty of God. He declares that what is happening in the present already has been. This means that the present is unfolding according to God's will and plan that was set from the foundation of the world. Then that which will happen in the future already has been. It too will unfold according to God's foreordination or to his providence or his foreknowledge. Church, and not to beat a dead horse here, but God does this to bring us to a reverent fear of Him. His sovereign providence is to bring us to a reverent fear of Him. Now, this, this fear that I'm talking about isn't um, describing a fear as in, like, I'm, I'm afraid to ride my bike down that trail, I might get hurt, or I need to have the door open a little bit at night because I'm, uh, I'm afraid of the dark. The fear is different here. This, this is a, a reverent fear that he is talking about. A, a fear that should drive us to kneel down in absolute awe of who God, our creator, is. So let me, let me break this down for us. To fear him means, now listen closely, to fear him means to revere him, to be afraid to stand in awe of him, to be awed, to honor him, to respect him, be astonished by him. Church, this is what it means to fear our God. Know that he is the sovereign creator of all things and that that he holds eternity in his hands. So how are we doing with that? Have you taken time this week to bow down in reverence of him? Have you been on your knees praying and knowing and trusting that it is only God, who can make a difference in anything that we're going through and anything that we're experiencing in life. Have you taken time to faithfully pray for other families in our church? If not, why? Why haven't you done this? Church, we need to be a people who are on our knees Pleading with the creator of all heavens and earth. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters up in Olds, up in Red Deer, in Edmonton, Calgary South. They're attached to us. That's, that's our body across the world. Why aren't we doing that? So church, if, if you are here today and you don't know him, all this is foreign to you, you don't know our creator, you don't revere him, today's an opportunity to turn. Turn to him. God is perfect. He, he alone is the one who can redeem what's been lost. 
He says it right here at the end. Look at the end of our text in verse 15. And God seeks what has been driven away. That which has been driven away means the persecuted. That's us. His people. We are the persecuted. That's the person who is sitting next to you. That's our brothers and sisters in the churches across the world. That's the brothers and sisters in the churches locally around us. People in Edmonton, even if they're Oilers fans, they are still our family in Christ Jesus. And we ought to be praying, praying to our Lord for them. I'm going to leave us today with, with a little bit of imagery to think about as this all sinks in. I just thought it was a good way to describe it. Um, parents, you know what's best for your kids. You are their parents. Surely you always have their best interests in mind when you make decisions for them. And let's be honest, if it was up to them, what would they do? What would they eat? Uh, they would probably choose pizza, nachos, maybe a, a nice bowl of cereal in the middle of the day. Uh, they'd probably dig into a bag of chips, and probably after each one of those meals, a, a nice, generous bowl of ice cream. If Kyle's, Kyle Gulayetz is here, he probably recognizes this doesn't sound that much different than my fire hall most of the days. For bedtime, maybe your kids would stay up as late as they feel. They're not going to go to bed when they ought to. And often, our children don't know that we've made plans for them tomorrow to go to a park. They don't know that we have a big trip planned somewhere. Maybe it's a surprise. They don't know that they need their rest for upcoming events. Where I'm going with this is that your, your children might not know the big picture. They don't, they don't know the big picture of what you have planned. They don't know what's in store for them tomorrow. They don't know always what's in store for them in the weeks, the months, the years to come. But they don't need to know. What they need to do is to listen to you and to trust that what you are doing as their parents is for their good. Now, they might not always agree with you, but they will benefit if they respect and listen to your authority. Now, isn't, isn't this a perfect view of, of us and the Father? He is sovereign, and, and we are not. Sometimes, more often than not, we want things to go our way, my plans. And to be honest, we get very frustrated when things don't happen our way, and we get even more frustrated when we don't understand Why? That ought not to be our response, church. We ought to praise him for his sovereign providence and know that he is God and we are not. He is the creator and we are not. So let's, let's never get this confused, church, or else we're going to end up uh, very much like Solomon, frustrated and eventually caught in sin. Church, today is Communion Sunday. Uh, I'm excited to be here with you guys for this. Uh, Adam is going to come up here and he will present to us the elements. Take this time right now uh, to set this relationship right. If, if you recognize that you have reversed this relationship with the Father and, and you've tried to put yourself in his place as God, if you're God over your own life, church, repent of that right now. Humble yourself before him and rearrange this relationship to where it ought to be. Pray that God would in, in, increase your faithfulness in him and that you'd recognize him as a sovereign creator. Take this time to search your hearts and, and make right any sins that stand uh, between you and your creator. Uh, let me pray for us as we enter this time. Father, we are... Uh, a people very much in need of you. You are our divine and holy God. You have created all things and, and you have ordained all things and you, and you 
hold all things together with the power of your hand. Thank you, God, for this, this amazing truth that we've, we've looked at today as we turn our eyes back to you and, and leave here hopefully invigorated and, and energized by seeing who you truly are. God, help us to search our hearts and enlighten us where, where there is sin in our lives that we, we might repent of it and, and be brought back into the fold. God, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for this time together. Soften our hearts. And, and we pray this in the name of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.